0: You are now entering The Transit Transit Zone. Zone. Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia.
1: I go Kingston in Comboin Regional, New South
0: Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beerpipe people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. This is part two of our two-part extended conversation with the 29th Prime Minister of Australia between 2015 and 2018, Malcolm Turnbull. Let's get back to the elephant in the room, Mr Turnbull. Recently, you said you can't think of a bigger black and white failure of public administration than the Morrison government's failures in procuring COVID vaccines and their design and execution of the vaccination rollout now as you well know we in australia have some of the best smartest epidemiologists and public health scientists in the world that's one of our strengths in australia top quality advice are plenty now how do you analyze what's gone so drastically wrong with vaccination in australia well look you know that it is about
2: it's about two months ago i said i said what you just quoted me as saying I remember as I was saying it, I thought to myself, oh, gosh, I, that's probably a bit harsh. Uh, and then I thought, no, no, it's, it's fair. You know, if you walked out into the street and repeated that today, people look at you and say, oh, yeah, so you're going to tell me the popes a Catholic too? I mean, what other <laughs> penetrating glimpses of the obvious have you got to share with me? It is it is just a complete train wreck. I mean, I, I, I can't explain it. I do not understand how we could have got to the point where we don't have enough vaccines. I mean it's just it's 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 just absolutely inexplicable and unforgivable. I mean obviously you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Obviously you get as many vaccines as you can. And if you end up with twice as many as you need, you give the ones you don't need to the Pacific or to PNG or to Indonesia or take your pick. I mean it like I, it it's just it's incredible. We would not have most of Australia locked down today if Morrison had bought enough vaccines. You know, the the rollout of the vaccination, I mean, the big mistake there was that the Commonwealth decided they were going to do the rollout, vaccine rollout. And that was purely political. That was because Scott wanted to get all the credit for the saving everyone from COVID. Now, again, that was just... Crazy hubris. Uh, the states have been running their public health. You know, agencies have been running vaccinations forever. I suspect for a hundred years, probably. Uh, and why you would not just say to each of the states, "Okay, you know, here are the vaccines. Go for it, and let them get on with it is beyond utterly beyond me. Um, the other thing. I guess, that is also extraordinary is the failure on quarantine. Now, you know, uh, as several people have pointed out, quarantine is actually listed as one of the responsibilities of the Commonwealth Parliament in Section 51 of the Constitution. So this is not one of those vague, ambiguous areas. Um, Jane Holton, who, you know, was Secretary of Finance, Secretary of Health, you know, very distinguished public servant jane recommended oh it must be nearly a year ago now November. I think it is a year ago uh, she rec- recommended that there should be special cabin style quarantine centers set up to avoid the aerosol cross infection that you get in hotels uh but nothing's been done apart from how you know howard springs is a is was a was built as a, you know, a uh, construction camp, for um, I think by the Japanese developers of the, some of the big gas projects in the Northern Territory. So you know, Howard Springs they've taken advantage of. That's good. I gather they've added some additional cabins to it. But this should have been, you know, this should have been done last year, and and could have been could be done quite quickly because this cabin-style accommodation is modular. Uh, uh, you know, I would think you could get something very serviceable put, you know, stood up swiftly. The criticism that that the government had two jobs, vaccines and quarantine, and they flunked both of them is fair, but the vaccines is by far the worst because that's that is literally, you know, that that is just it, it's just it is inexplicable. I mean, it is obvious that you would not. Uh, particularly when you've got new vaccines, that you would not put all your eggs in one basket. You would want to make sure that you got, you know, a lot. When I say a lot, I mean, you know, several times what you need, supply from a number of vaccine providers, and we didn't. And and other countries did. I mean, I was talking to... Well, I won't say I was talking to. It was another leader, but, but I mean, it is the... Australia's failure on vaccination has been, uh, it's, it's astounded the world. So there it is, and that's why
0: we're locked up at the moment. Most of the outbreaks came out of these leaky tourist hotel quarantines. Yeah. And you mentioned Howard Springs. As far as I know, and I've tried checking this, Howard Springs hasn't had any escapes and hasn't yeah. had any internal infections, which all the other quarantine facilities around Australia have. Now, early on, of course, as the emergency hit early 2020, Morrison induced the states to take on the stopgap measure of hotel quarantine. What do you think has driven his reluctance, even recalcitrant since then, to take up the burden and the responsibility federally? I, I don't know. He,
2: don't, he, you know, it's the, it's getting back to the sort of, I don't hold the hose, mate. You know, he doesn't seem, when real leadership and responsibility is called for, he doesn't seem to step up. I mean, I, I, I don't understand why, I don't understand why he didn't buy Ample supplies of vaccines from three or four suppliers. I do not understand that. Uh, that's I just cannot. That there is just no rational explanation for that. It's it's bonkers because obviously you know things go wrong, right? I mean why? I mean you. Everyone knows little kids. I mean I'm sure you know my grandchildren would know. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. I mean it's it's a pretty basic. Um, so I don't understand that. And on quarantine, I, I guess the I get look. I guess the reality is, I suppose he thought there's always going to be problems with quarantine. You know, he'd rather they be blamed on somebody else other than him. But Ooh. I mean, the Commonwealth. Didn't, com, well, I mean, That's the Commonwealth. That's harsh, Malcolm. Well, I, I'm trying to find an explanation, Margot. I do not. I don't get it. And I mean, what I particularly don't understand is when. And it was by the middle of last year, it was obvious that this virus was spread by aerosols. Okay, so what that meant was that anywhere where there was airspace that was shared, whether it was common air conditioning or corridors or lobbies, you had potential problems of cross infection. And of course, that's all gone up to the nth degree with the hyper contagious Delta variant. But let's say we weren't aware of that nonetheless that's why jane recommended that these cabin style quarantine centers be established now the commonwealth didn't have to build them themselves the commonwealth should have simply said okay here's jane's report it's clearly right uh we want to have one of these you know want to have you know half a dozen of these around the country um let's get on with it and and just make sure it happens but you know, ultimately, that you know, things ha- don't happen. I mean, there's a, it's a, that there is a, the government, the government is not doing a very good job at governing. I mean, I'll give you another example, the thing that baffles me too. There were two big renewable energy sort of projects that I got underway. One was Snowy Hydro 2.0, which thankfully is under construction. That's, you know, that's all, that was, too far advanced for it to be sidetracked. But the other one was the battery of the nation. This is the big idea, and it was my idea, to combine Tasmania's great wind resource with their very old but, you know, effective hydro scheme. You know, you generate lots of renewable energy with the wind turbines. You pump water uphill when it's very windy and to store the electricity, you have an additional interconnector. You know, Battery of the Nation, All about, read all about it in my book. And uh, anyway, that was a good idea. It was as good an idea as Snowy 2, but a more complex one. Um, but, you know, this is, it was more than four years ago that I set out the Battery of the Nation idea, as I did Snowy 2. Snowy 2 is at least being built. What's happening with Battery of the Nation? They're still talking about it. So, so nothing's happened. And, and, you know, this is getting back to the issue of climate change. One of the things we have to have for the energy transition is long-duration storage, and that requires planning. You know, you you can build a wind farm or let let alone a solar farm very quickly, Um, but if you want to build a pump storage scheme to store that electricity when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining that's going to take you some years because you've got a lot of civil works you've got environmental permitting etc cetera, etc cetera. so you've got to get on with it so the only big pump storage scheme being built in australia is snowy 2 it's the one i started literally nothing else has been done so you know for all this talk about technology not taxes what exactly is being done you know where is the actual output and it's like going out and thinking that when you get the do the press conference, write the press release, get the headline and the telegraph, uh, that that's it. That's not governing. That's marketing. What you've actually got to do is, sure, make the announcement, then you've got to go on and do something and build something. What no, is with, there?
1: I don't know if, if you'd be into this analysis, but one reason I think that they're not able to govern anymore is that they don't really... Want a public service like with with history and 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 experience and expertise to put out options and everything. They basically at the top want people to say, right, I'll do it. like there, there seems to be something more in play in this collapse of governance than just you know Morrison's an announcer, not a planner.
2: Yeah, I, well, I don't I, I don't I don't understand it. I mean it's not it's not you know if you look at the the things that I got underway, in you know i was pm for just under three years um well the snowy two i mentioned that that's being built i got the nbn completed i know people disagree about the technology mix but at least it was finished Mm. at least it was finished i tell you you know if we if we'd stuck to labor's plan it would have been half done when the pandemic hit and then we would have been really screwed so the pandemic sort of ex-post facto justified the approach we took if nothing else but the but you know western sydney airport talked about for what 30 years 40 years uh it's i got got it underway made the decision that the commonwealth would build it uh you know made sure we had the the land for the aerotropolis which i felt got fetched got back from the defense department uh and it's it's going to it's being built, you know. I mean, it's like it's, it's oh, you know. Hopefully, it'll be finished by 2026. I don't know whether it's running a bit behind with the pandemic, but but the thing is, you've got to actually get in and do things. I mean, and you've got to, and you know, Gla- I know Gladys is sort of under siege at the moment, but but you know, you've got to give the state government here credit. I mean, they're actually getting on and doing things, whereas some of their Labor predecessors were, you know, were better at publishing plans and you know making announcements and actually doing stuff so that's the that's the problem the sort of the spin cycle approach to politics may win you
0: a few elections but ultimately you end up with nothing to show for it Mr Turnbull, before we leave COVID, how do you see the federation playing out now? We're almost pre-federation with states around Australia shutting their borders to New South Wales and big Mm -hmm. high numbers again today with the Delta COVID virus in New South Wales. And of course, we saw the National Cabinet replace COAG. We saw interesting power shifts back and forth between the Prime Minister and the various state premiers. What's your snapshot of the federation and federalism at the moment? Well, I think it's been the revival of uh, of the
2: states, frankly. Uh when you, if you go back to the early days of the pandemic, the Prime Minister was, uh, I think, more sanguine or, you know, more relaxed about uh, the risks uh you know he certainly and I remember when he said he assured everyone he was going to the footy and a lot of people gasped <laughs> when he said that but it was frankly it was Gladys Berejiklian and Dan Andrews who really compelled the the tougher approach I think initially um Palaszczuk in Queensland and McGowan in Western Australia were very tough on borders and were rewarded mightily for that in their state elections. So there's no doubt people want to be protected. Look, yeah, I think the, the the states have basically, I mean, the states have taken the lead on all of the public health aspects of this, on the quarantining, uh, because the feds, you know, washed their hands of it. The states did the quarantine stuff, even though it was in the constitution as a federal responsibility. Uh, they obviously have done the testing um, and they've done the local, you know, vac- uh, local pandemic management. Um, they've now been brought back into the vaccination program because the federal government realised they couldn't do it themselves. But you know that's one of the things that's made the rollout a bit uncoordinated and uh, shambolic in some respects. Um, you know, I mean, you've got people here in Sydney turning up with very long-standing appointments to get Pfizer. And being told, "Sorry, you can't have Pfizer; it's Astra or nothing," you know. Now that, that's you know that's pretty that's 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 not that's not very admirable. I think um, with the states have all also Peter taken the lead on um, energy. I mean, the 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 political impasse in Canberra means that energy policy is being more and more driven by state governments. Um, particularly the intersection of climate and energy policy, uh, you know that's not really satisfactory. Um, better than nothing, I suppose, but it does. But I, yeah, I do. I think the the states are more potent now today than they were a decade ago. That's for sure.
1: China very interested in this topic, and it struck me when you were talking about Morrison that. Maybe the the West that sort of lost lost the capacity for long term planning because of social media and you know all those factors, and that we're being outgunned big time by a, by an authoritarian state that has thirty year plans and actually does it. Just wondering where you're at with the emerging Cold War, and do you think the West, led by America, ha- has the capacity for it to be a fair fight?
2: Well, there's a lot of questions there. There I, are yeah. uh, <laughs> the, um, it's a big. I mean, this is a. This is a. That's a. This is like a whole. Yeah. Many hours discussion itself. Yeah. So I think, in summary, uh, the United States is the leader of the Western world yep. or the democratic world. You know, I. Th- I don't think that's going to change in any time soon. Um, we we have to live with China. China has to live with us. We can't change China. China can't change us or shouldn't change us. Uh, we have to stand up for our values. Uh, we've got to be realistic about our ability to influence affairs within China um, and use such leverage as we have effectively. And you know, you should measure that. The idea is not to be grandstanding and making great statements. I mean, Kevin and I were talking about this yesterday in a talk with Latrobe Uni. But you know, you've got to you've got to uh, recognise that there is. You know, subtlety, nuance and fine distinctions have their role and um, make sure that your diplomacy uh, is calculated to deliver outcomes as opposed to just headlines in the local media. So, uh, yeah, I think we need to do whatever we can to influence China to uh, not, uh, you know, persecute its citizens or some of its citizens. Um, as as is happening in Xinjiang, uh, but recognise the limits of our influence. In terms of our own position, um, obviously you can't give in to bullying or coercion and you've got to, where other, you know, smaller and medium-sized countries like Australia are being bullied, uh, we've got to show them solidarity. I think the Chinese campaign of coercion against Australia has demonstrably failed and I think in a in a way that's turned out to be for the good because it's demonstrated to the world and to Beijing that this sort of crude bullying is very counterproductive I mean I've told I've told the Chinese leaders this for a long time you know including here at our home in Sydney Uh, and it's a it's just um, just very counterproductive Um, I mean Rudd and I both agreed on that. It's it's obvious. So hopefully there will be a rethink uh, in Beijing before too long, and we can have a more civil and constructive relationship. There will always be areas where we don't trust each other, but that's okay. There are areas, you know, we don't trust every other person the same anyway. I mean, there are things you'd tell your wife or your husband that you wouldn't tell people you work with, and there are, Things you tell people you work with that you wouldn't tell people that work for a rival firm. So we've just got to establish what are the boundaries of trust, work out how we can collaborate within them. I think there's plenty of scope for that, uh, and above all, uh, resume a civil and constructive dialogue. But the the freezer that Beijing's put Australia in was obviously has not worked.
1: The whole world's got to come together for Glasgow, right and left, and authoritarian and democracy. Mm. Over. Do you do you have high hopes for that? Do you think that all this weather and horror might mm. come together and we, we really get somewhere?
2: Well, I have high hopes. I I I've, I don't. I'm not close enough to the uh, debate between U.S. and China to really be you know certain about I mean i have discussed it with john kerry I obviously haven't recently i haven't spoken to his chinese counterpart re- or at all certainly not anyone from beijing recently look i mean the, the boris johnson is very committed to it as the host alok sharma you know the glasgow cop minister or the president of the cop i think is his title who's a you know british cabinet minister is very Is very committed and i've spent some time with him look i i i i think there's there's every prospect that it could work there's every prospect that it could be at least as good if not better than paris and and hopefully not as catastrophic as copenhagen but that's uh but you know the you know people are saying to me oh you know why will china bother to do anything about it well the reality is that you know china is i don't know 20 percent of the world's population and you know, however much they may dislike, you know, the Australian government or the American government, uh, we're all on the same planet. You know? yep. So so if the planet fries, we're all going to get fried. We're all in the same fry pan. We can't, we haven't got an alternative. So uh, I think, uh, you know, you've just got to hope that rational self-interest will prevail and that we will get concerted uh, concerted action. And, you know, and China's... Sort of argument that it used to have, which is say, oh, we're just a poor developing country. I mean, please. I mean, yeah, sure. There's still a, there's still quite a lot of poor people in China, but to describe China as a developing country, you know, and put it in the same category as well, even you know, frankly, even India. I mean, China is China is a highly developed, technologically sophisticated, advanced economy which still has quite a lot of poor people living within its borders. But, you know, there's not much that uh, the Americans and the West can do any longer that China cannot do as well, if
0: not better. I watched that discussion between you and Kevin Rudd last night, the Latrobe Online Uni discussion, and it was very interesting, and I'll put a link up for it so people can get the full bottle on that. But what you left me unsatisfied about was Taiwan. You referenced ANZUS, mm. and you've spent some time with Xi Jinping, and it's very clear after Hong Kong, we've seen what happened there, that he is really going to move to integrate Taiwan back into well, the mainland. Well, yeah,
2: he may. I mean, it's a look, it's a big call... Uh, it is no doubt, it's a you know huge aspiration and you can understand why he would want to do it. You know, the the, the problem, look, here's the thing. If you go back to the years, say the latter part of the uh, 20th century, China was and remains an authoritarian regime presided over by the Communist Party that believes China's capital is Beijing and Taiwan is a province of China. Taiwan was presided over by an authoritarian political party, the Kuomintang, which believed that China's capital was Beijing, Taiwan was a province of China, but regrettably, the wrong people were in charge in Beijing. Everyone agreed, except for a minor detail. But that's true. Now we're in a position where Taiwan is for all, has been for quite some years now, for all intents, an independent country. It doesn't have that recognition or status, however, but it is a democracy. It is a thoroughgoing democracy. Now, the aspiration, probably naive, I think, on the part of the West was that as China liberalized economically, it would become more liberal politically. And as it became more liberal, it would move closer to democratic values. It might, you know, people saying, oh, it might start to look more like Singapore, you know uh, and therefore Taiwan, Taiwanese people would say, oh, well, you know, we can do a one country, two systems type of thing. That's OK. Well, that's all out the window. So the problem is the problem that the West faces uh, and America faces in particular is are you prepared to allow the People's Republic of China to use sheer military force to uh, integrate against its will a democratic country of, you know, 25 million people it's about the same size as australia and i i think the answer to that is no i just think that I, I think that would i think if china decided to invade taiwan it would result in a war with the united states with all of the catastrophic consequences for all concerned
1: and that means I, we would go to war too
2: i well look we, we have, have an ancestry yeah. I, I don't margot i don't you know they're I know some people will try to quibble, but I think if you know, I don't think we were under any obligation to go to war with in Iraq or Afghanistan. uh, By the way, and certainly we weren't under ANZUS, but you know the ANZUS treaty talks about American forces being attacked in the Pacific, and you know that's where that's the that's the area the ambit of that of that alliance, I just, I think that would be, uh, you know, and I think the Jap, I think Japan would be, would be drawn in as well. So I think you would, I think the, um, if, uh, uh, Xi Jinping were to seek to use military force to, you know, annex Taiwan, um, against the will of the Taiwanese people that that would I don't see how you get out of a a very big war. That might be a
0: quick, it might be over quickly, of course, but uh, be terrible. Final quick question, Mr. turnbull. you've we've been talking about the United States as being sort of just off to the side of this conversation in many ways. You've been in the United States a lot, you've met Donald Trump. You have observed everything that we've observed. We're now seeing muscular voter suppression. We've got the big lie. We've got hyper-partisanship, not even able to address the insurrection in the capital. And many other things as well. We've got gerrymandering and all that. Is the United States still an authentic democracy, or is it something more like a Potemkin democracy now? Oh, no, well, no. I think, it's, a, I think it's, a, it's an authentic, it's an imperfect democracy
2: the um but but yes but there is a this this i mean i spoke about this issue in the digitally lecture i gave recently and uh you know i i i think it's i think the the way the republic the sort of anti-democratic initiatives being undertaken by republican state legislatures are are really shocking but there but there is a there's a whole history of racism there you know i mean as I mentioned, the, there's that dreadful movie from 1915, *Birth of a Nation*, which uh, is worth looking at. It's uh, pretty gruesome. It's a, you know, a bit of, it's a, you know, a very pro-Southern, pro-lost cause account of the Civil War, the end of the Civil War, and how you know the stalwart Christian white uh, heroes of the South are taken over by brutish. Union soldiers, including many, Afro, you know, black men, uh, and how it shows black uh, people, you know, the freed slaves being elected to the southern legislatures. There's one shocking scene which depicts the black legislators, you know, basically behaving like apes. You know, it's 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 kind it's terrible stuff. But here's the thing. The moment of triumph in the movie at the end is when our the hero uh, this southern you know confederate soldier uh, together with his comrades ride up dressed as clansmen, you know in their white hoods, he having sort of founded the clan or that's the sort of story of the movie, and intimidate the freed slaves from going to the polling booth to vote. So voter suppression, a moment of voter suppression by force is the uh, hurrah moment of the movie, as far as the makers were concerned. So, you know, there's... Now, I mean, I have to say, to give us little Aussie battlers credit, and, I'm you know, there's never been any shortage of skullduggery in Australia in politics, but... I think that an overwhelming majority of Australians, you know, absolutely believe that every adult citizen should be on the electoral roll and they should vote. You know, there are some people who are libertarians and say you shouldn't be compelled to vote, but I think vast majority of people agree with that. And certainly we've had our electoral boundaries drawn by independent, independent of politicians for, for many, many years. I think at the federal level, It's always been, it used to be drawn by the public service and then for at least 50 years it's been done by the Electoral
0: Commission. Mr Turnbull, thank you so much for spending time with us today in the Transit Zone. Thanks very much, Peter and Margot. Good to see you. Margot, thank you. Thank you. With Margot Kingston and me this time in the Zone, the 29th Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. Mr Turnbull's memoir is titled A Bigger Picture and there's a link to it with the on-screen text for this podcast plus some other links to useful resources about democracy if you'd like to delve more deeply after hearing our discussion today. Remember, there are a series of Pandemic Primer podcasts with New Zealand-based epidemiologist Professor John Potter in the Transit Zone Archive. Five episodes in all, so check those out. If you'd like to write to us with any kind of feedback... Including ideas for new Transit Zone episodes, this is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. That's transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon, right here in the Transit Zone.
1: You are now leaving. The Transit zone. Zone.